Hello and welcome to Steelcast, Tata Steel's very own podcast about all things steel. Now it's been about two months since our last episode, but what a couple of months it's been. Most notably, of course, speculation in the mainstream media that the UK government is prepared to invest in Tata Steel to help its Talbot site move away from basic oxygen steelmaking and move towards electric arc furnace technology, often described as a greener way of making steel. Now, at the time of recording, there's been no official statement or confirmation from the government or Tata Steel, nor its parent company, Tata Group. Uh, regular viewers and listeners may have already recognised that I'm not the usual host, Mr Tim Rutter, who is on holiday. My name's Gareth Brooks, and I'm picking up the mic for the first time. And equally for the first time, I'm attending the UK Metals Expo here at Birmingham NEC. This place is bursting at the seams with exhibitors, guest speakers and visitors from all around the UK's metals industries. So without further ado, let's go in and get talking to people. Okay, so the UK Bells Expo's kicked off. There's been plenty of speakers, lots of mingling and networking going on. I'm catching up with Lord Rupert Reesdale, um, Conference Chairman of the UK Bells Expo. Lord Rupert, welcome to uh, Steelcast. Hello, good to see you. Uh, could you please give us uh, a brief history of the UK Metals Expo? I understand this is the second one. Yeah, so bizarrely, um, we started this last year because there was no show focusing on all aspects of the metals industry in the UK. And whilst you know people say, well, perhaps we should just look at steel, you know, there's there's a a number of uh, aluminium, you know, the cast metals, all these other industries that have the same problems and really want to discuss the same thing. Yeah, because I was going to say, I'm, I'm very much within the steel industry, I'm within that bubble, um, and I don't really know much about other metals, really. I'm not, I don't know how aluminium is made, I don't know if they're suffering the same problems, do they need to decarbonise, for instance? So, so for, by the sounds of everybody's in the same boat. Oh, definitely. I mean, we're looking at, funnily enough, growing industry, although everybody talks it is this in decline, you're actually looking at vast numbers of smaller companies looking at... Uh, different types of uh, uh, processes but the real issues that all companies are facing I think fall into the decarbonization how do we do it it's not an easy process it's difficult skills we need to have people understanding how we decarbonize how do we move forward you know how you move to electric arc furnaces for Tata um, and I think the final one is how we deal with the new landscape post Brexit and the problems that are coming down the line I mean there could be a trade war over carbon and subsidies coming from China the US and Europe and of course post Brexit we're out on our own yeah because I started another talk just now when I did hear that 90% uh, of steel for example doesn't pay a carbon tax uh, so are we really fighting with sort of one hand behind that back here uh, it's a big, big topic, carbon taxes, and of course carbon taxes were designed to make sure that people decarbonised. You know, you put a price on it so people go down the route of decarbonisation. Uh, I think people are getting to the point realising if you're going to get to net zero or carbon neutrality, you really are going to have to change just about every element of the process. You're going to have to start thinking um, much longer term about recycling a circular economy. That's the sort of skill set that we need to build up because it's not one that has come naturally to some of the older industries. 
Okay, and so right now, if we look at the, the state of the UK battles industry, funnily enough, there's a report launched today. Um, what, did that, what were the findings of that report? And were there any surprises in it? There was a massive surprise, which is we put it out to all the sectors, and um, from the responses, there was a very positive feel about you know the future of metals in the UK and the production of metals in the UK, which you know you always feel that there's this industry's on a knife edge, it's about to collapse. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of positive feeling about you know where we're going forward, and I think we're going to have to start thinking about this because global trade is you know we we think that globalization can't be rolled back and I think it will be uh, you know when you're looking at the Americans saying look we're going to protect our, our steel but it means that we're going to have to uh, produce locally and we've also got to start thinking about the value of recycling it just it beggars belief that we are actually exporting millions of tons of uh, steel which we should be using ourselves that's right so if we do indeed move away from the basic oxygen steel making process and bring in the electric arc furnace that runs purely on scrap um, does that mean we will have to stop exporting our scrap just so we could fuel our own furnaces oh god yeah why are we exporting something so valuable it just you know why aren't we using it but we've also got to sort of get people to understand especially politicians that electric arc furnaces can't do everything there is a role for um, other processes even though they're the higher carbon to actually uh, produce this and one of the things I'm particularly worried about is if we offshore and say well it's too high carbon we'll actually get somebody else to do it how can you prove that they're lower carbon they might just be subsidizing and I think that's a process people really have to understand the carbon cost of these things and yes steel is and other metals are high carbon but that doesn't mean they're low carbon anywhere else that's right, yes. Yeah. So it's, often, it's often said, isn't it, if, if we don't have a steel industry anymore in the UK, we'll have to import our steel from the likes of China, who, and then, then we just export in our, our carbon footprint, in effect. Um, very quickly, going back to that report, and it is all about UK metals in general, it's not just steel. Um, how are other metals industries lobbying? For, for the survival of the steel industry? Well, I think over the last couple of years, energy prices have been the big one. Um, and that, you know, that's because the war in Ukraine, it's also, you know, post-pandemic growth. So energy prices are coming down again, but I don't think they're going to go as low as they once were. People don't think there's a natural level for energy. I think it's going to be quite high. But that's an energy price that everybody's facing throughout the world. Um, so I think energy is going to be a big one. Uh, getting the government to introduce an industrial strategy. Because, you know, when you're talking about building a building, yes, you have the I-beams, yes, you have the steel going into that, but you also have the copper wiring, you also have the aluminium frames and extrusions that are all over the building. You know, when we're looking at products, we're not just talking about steel, we're talking about all the other elements that are taking place there. And everybody has the problem saying, okay, we've got to get energy costs under control. Do we really need carbon taxes if we're actually becoming low carbon in other ways? Um, should we should we really upskill to make sure that everything we're doing has as little effect on the environment as possible? Because you know we're coming across some real issues uh, which people aren't looking at. Climate change means we're not going to have the water supplies, and that means that industry which was taking place in southern countries is going to have to move north, and you know so that could be an opportunity for Britain.
but we also have our own water problems. Yeah, so again, it's, you sort of answer one question and you, you, you sort of, you know, bring up another five. Um, this is an ongoing issue, uh, but this is a wonderful event. You've brought so many people together and literally thousands of people through the door. And uh, thank you very much for spending time with us. Thank you. So the second ever Metals Expo is well and truly underway and I bumped into Paul Griffiths of Jaguar Land Rover. Uh, Paul, great to see you. Hi Gareth, good to see you as well. Uh, first days have gone really well. Um, really enthused um, by the amount of people, the amount of customers and the amount of enthusiasm for, for metals in the UK. Yeah, so there's a lot of people here. Do you think, given the current climate, you know, energy crisis, that kind of thing, is it more important than ever for manufacturers, suppliers and customers alike to all come together under one roof? Yeah, 100%. I think the beauty of it today for us is very much to bring everybody together. I think we've all shared the same problems ultimately, whether that be decarbonisation, sustainability and certainly some innovation. And what we've seen here today is everybody coming together to try and conquer that challenge as a group. Uh, you, what we realise is you cannot do that on your own in JLR and what we're trying to do is work in collaboration with our supply partners and industry experts together with the government officials to really move it forward. Uh, we have some really challenging targets within JLR, uh, we take it extremely seriously and as I say coming to events like this really does help bring it all to, together and make sure we're there for that common goal. Great. So, mentioning that you know the, the challenges, sustainability, decarbonisation, uh, the challenge we're all facing. Um, the, you'd say the automotive industry is moving towards cleaner electrical vehicles. Um, equally, that the steel industry is trying to move towards greener steel. Um, so that transition. Do you think there's anything we can share and learn from from each other? Yeah, I'm lucky enough to have spent uh, time in both companies, 17 years in Tata Steel in, in a previous life and now 10 years in Jaguar Land Rover. Uh, I think obviously we share the same parent company, same values, which is absolutely critical. Uh, we've got our challenges, uh, slightly different in, in terms of automotive. Um, electric vehicles is something which obviously uh, most of the key premium OEMs are heading towards, including JLR. Uh, and with that becomes a lot of work to be done on metals. Uh, so aluminium, steel, a big parts to play, decarbonising and uh, working on new types of steel, green steel, uh, changing the way we manufacture steel within not just the UK but in the wider globe is absolutely critical. Green steels is certainly something which we are looking at within Jaguar Land Rover and coming to events like this is really, really good to see that the industry is taking it seriously and everybody's heading in the right direction together. Yeah, great. You mentioned green steel there. That's obviously something we're trying to move towards. Uh, as a customer of ours and then your customers, is that something your customers are trying to pull from you? Is there a demand for greener steel? It certainly is. Uh, our customer base is very much well educated and they really want to understand where the components are made. So working together with the likes of Tata Steel and other companies, uh, we really need to work together to get to, to meet the customer needs. This, is, this has become a hygiene factor for customers, uh, whereas previously sometimes they may not care or may not mind where these uh, components are sourced from or, or, or how they're sourced. This is really, really important both to JLR and to our customer base. Also, yeah, so it's important to JLR, therefore it's important to Tata Steel. Um, 
the automotive sector as a whole, do you th is it lobbying? Is it really trying to put pressure on the government to help us decarbonise? Yeah, we have a very good, close working relationship with the government and um, we're very much uh, putting our views across in terms of moving at speed. I think there's more work to be done within the UK. Uh, the government are listening, but we need to move faster. And I think there's a lot of work being done both by our government affairs team, um, but, but also working with supplier partners as well, speaking to their local MPs, speaking to the government. Um, and as I say, a huge amount of work still to be done in this area, but 100% uh, that's very much where we're heading towards. Excellent, Paul. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we're going to move on and find out other topics uh, to discuss. So as the day has rolled on, there have been more keynote speeches and panel discussions. Uh, some of the topics that keep coming up are decarbonisation and sustainability. Uh, another one that keeps cropping up is uh, skills. With new technology coming into the industry, will there be uh, a lack of skills? I'm joined by Becky Waldrum, Impact and Engagement Manager at Sustain. Uh, welcome to the pod, Becky. Thank you for having me. Uh, could you just give us a brief introduction around Sustain, please? Yeah, of course. So Sustain itself is actually an acronym. It stands for Strategic University Steel Technology and Innovation Network, but we normally go by SUSTAIN for obvious reasons. Um, and we are working mainly at, um, at the host university of Swansea. We work with Sheffield and Warwick universities as well, um, and most of the major steel uh, producing companies in the UK, including yourselves. Um, and we cover a range of research projects which are led by Industry Steel, basically, to help the steel industry towards its targets for net zero. Fantastic, so massive support to us in the industry. Uh, so like I said, there will be, or it sounds as though uh, there will be a lack of skills if technology changes in the industry. Um, how, how will we get over that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question actually, because it's not just in manufacturing. We have a lack of people studying science and engineering subjects in general. So this is obviously going to filter through into the industry. Like you said, with new technologies, there are always new skills to be learnt. So people who work on the blast furnaces, for example, at the moment, if a lot of companies in the UK were to change to something like electric arc furnace, there'd be a lot of different skills required um, to use that sort of technology, to know how it works, to know uh, the good and the bad aspects of it and how you uh, go about monitoring those during a process. So there's a lot of new things to be learnt there, but it's not just in that heavy manufacturing side. There's also a lot of digital technologies coming into steel making now. There's a lot of data that at the moment is collected from plants and perhaps not used to the extent it could be. So I think there'll also be a lot of digital skills that are needed as we move forward to help make processes as efficient um, as possible uh, to be able to decarbonise as fast as we can. But it's not just a lack of skills, Becky, as there's also a lack of female representation. Although looking around the room today, you would not, uh, you would not guess. Um, but I know in Tata Steel, only 11% of our workforce are actually female. Um, how can we go about changing that? And when do you think that starts? I think, well, as you said, looking around here today, there are a lot more women than I would have expected at a big metals event so that's really really encouraging to see. I think a lot of people don't realise the diversity of jobs that are available in the steel industry and it's, it's not just all about being on the heavy end operating heavy machinery there are a lot of very technical skills that are involved as well um, and I think it's just a lack of knowledge um, about what the steel industry does and the type of roles that are available for men, women, for everybody um, so it is just getting it out there about the different types of jobs 
jobs that people can have working in the steel industry, but also making people aware of how important steel is. I think a fact you probably use quite often is everything is either made from or made using steel, and a lot of people don't realise that, and I think the more awareness we can bring to that fact, the more people will be interested in being in the industry, they'll realise we need to keep steel in the UK, um, and I think that starts actually at a really young age, so I know yourselves, uh, you've got projects going out to schools, talking to school kids, we do a similar thing in Sustain um, and, and through some of the other projects involved in the, in the hub, um, and it's going out there telling people what the steel industry is, how important it is, I mean things like circular economy, people are learning about now, you're talking about skills, people need to learn that, you know, it starts from the design, it's not all about, you know, starting by making the product, there's a lot of thought that goes in before a product is made, all the way through to what's going to happen to it at the end of life, um, and the more we can catch people when they're young and they realise the importance of these processes, uh, the more people we're going to have coming into manufacturing and, fingers crossed, the steel industry uh, when they pick a career um, later later in their lives. Absolutely. It does come down to that educational piece, doesn't it? And then there's the perception of the steel industry of being uh, a low-tech, dirty sort of industry. But as industry insiders, we know that just isn't the case, is it? No, absolutely not. I mean, in the steel plant, you've got constant monitoring going on, lots of highly technological pieces of equipment that are used all the time, some really, really refined processes to, to make steel. It is quite an interesting chemistry project, physics project, um, in some ways, looking at how steel is made. Um, and a lot, we do research at Swansea University. We've got Sustain, we've got SAMI, who do research in a university setting, um, in scientific labs where we're, you know, we're looking at small elements that have been added into steel, working with multi-million pound electron microscopes, that sort of thing, that is all part of the steel industry and really high-tech things that people don't realise that the steel industry involves. Absolutely fantastic. Thanks for joining me today, Becky. I'm going to carry on listening to uh, more speeches, uh, joining with more panel discussions and uh, bring you some more soon. So I just started on a panel discussion with Kathleen Adams and Debbie Ward from ASBP. Welcome to the podcast both. Um, as you may have seen in the press recently, there's a lot of speculation around uh, Tata Steel moving away from basic oxygen steel making and moving more towards electric arc furnace uh, technology. Uh, that's very, one, very energy intensive, but two, very uh, reliant on scrap. Now, during the panel discussion, you did mention that there just simply is not enough scrap in the world to fulfil the, the demand uh, and I do believe it's, we, we'll still need to be making virgin steel until around 2050 so if we are moving towards the electric arc furnace technology where do you see us getting this scrap from? Debbie? Well, I think fundamentally it's around um, promoting that reuse piece um, and ensuring that, I know you're talking about scrap particularly to put into the electric arc furnace, but if we're talking about um, deconstruction of buildings and taking away what we can for reuse, but then ensuring that the balance of that that isn't suitable for reuse does go for scrap and we're ensuring that, that everything goes back into that system, then hopefully there will be that scrap available for the electric arc furnace process. 
Yeah, we export a lot of our scrap as well. Don't I can't. It's in the millions, isn't it? I can't remember the actual figure. So surely, you know, surely it does make sense to keep to keep that in the UK and the, and and negate that carbon impact from transporting that scrap. I don't know if that modelling has also shown some some of the you know. And I picked this up in the panel session really about how we just need to be quite a lot more efficient in our designs and and you know make our steel work harder for it's you know for its functioning so you know less steel I think we can be much more clever in our design and then I guess linked to this as well there's a whole sort of thing about not demolishing building new maintaining our buildings like making them work harder and longer for us so whether that may have an effect on steel demand be interesting interesting to model that really see how that would come out so I remember back earlier this year uh, we attended the construction summit oh, yes. uh, and re recycle was almost uh, it was talked about as almost as a, as a bad word it should be the last resort really recycling we want to see reuse and repurpose um, but you touched upon uh, the functions of steel as well and you point out during your panel discussion that you know just you asked everybody to look around and see how much steel's already just just in this building alone it's not just in buildings it's in you know the homes we live in and the hospitals that treat us the shops we shop in uh, but it's also the, the vehicles we travel in the appliances we use it's it's, it's absolutely everywhere do, do you think steel uh, is almost taken for granted as a material people just assume it's always going to be there I think you can broaden that question. I think all materials are taken for granted, to tell the truth. I think, you know, I, I see myself as quite an informed, educated consumer. You know, I've, I've worked in, in sustainability and materials for a long time. But you know, I find it complicated, uh, you know, for me to know which material choi choice is, is the best. There's, you know, there's a real lack of awareness and information, but also importantly, how, how do you get that information in a way that that's still useful <laughs> useful to that consumer but also has got that technical evidence sound it's, it's a it's a real difficult one yeah and I, I think transparency is a massive part of that as well and the whole greenwash agenda now people are jumping onto the bandwagon because they understand that sustainability is becoming very much to the fore um, you know not just business to business but business to consumer people want to know you know as, as Catherine said you know in our household we try really hard as well to make the right buying decisions but even as somebody that's informed and passionate and trying to do the right thing and use your buying power as an individual never mind kind of influencing the, the b2b side of things it just is quite complicated and that's the last thing you want it to be you want it to be a really simple process and a decision that you can trust that the information that's there is clear and correct okay, great. I'm glad you brought up that word influence then because uh, back a few episodes on, on Steelcast uh, we, we were enlightened by uh, Professor John Gibbons from Sheffield University um, as we were pushing the idea of electric arc furnace to, to de decarbonize for our industry he pointed out that we only emit one to two percent of the world's carbon so wouldn't it be better uh, to be an industry leader you know, and, and influence the likes of the big emitters like China um, if we could go down the sort of carbon capture and storage route and would that influence uh, the world's decarbonization problem I think 
using any technology as a golden bullet to solve everything is not the way we need to go. It's unfortunately as simple as looking at your waste hierarchy and we need to rethink and um, uh, reduce. You know, that, that has to be what we're doing. And it's like having the conversation about offset. You, know, you shouldn't not offset, but it has to be done once you've done everything possible to reduce. Carbon capture is, is there, it's coming, but it's very much a technology in its infancy. And we can't dismiss it, but we can't rely on it. Yeah, I just agree com completely with what Debbie said, really. It, it, it is quite, you know, an emerging technology. We don't really know how well it's going to work. And the energy actually expended in making that technology as well, you know. I don't, I, I don't know how that all, all works together. So, yeah, I don't think it's quite the golden bullet it's, 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 it's claimed claim to be. Okay, great. Thank you so much for spending time, taking time out of your day. Uh, let you get on. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so here we are, the second day of the UK Metals Expo. I'm joined here by Kamal Rajput of Tata Steel. Uh, welcome, Kamal. Hi, hi, Gareth. So, um, how important is it, do you think, that uh, everybody in the metals and steel industry are coming together for events such as this? I think it's really, really important and really valuable. The metal sector contributes a huge amount to sort of the UK manufacturing economy. And I think what we've seen over the past few years is how important manufacturing is at the moment, but how important manufacturing Manufacturing needs to be as we grow our economy. Yeah, so day two, as I say, is, is, is on up and running. Uh, there are talks and panels going on. You've just come off a panel about offshore wind. Um, what sort of topics are coming up? What was being discussed on that panel? Yeah, so we looked at offshore wind and how important the metal sector is to contribute to the success of offshore wind. Uh, in day one, yesterday, uh, Stephen Kinnock talked about uh, the success story that is offshore wind and politically it seemed to be a success, but we were challenging that to say, well, how much manufacturing actually takes place in the UK? And the reality is, it's very little. So the one thing that the panel was talking about is what things can we do to support the steel sector, but the metals sector, and what skills, capability can be transferred to support the growth that we absolutely do see in offshore wind. That's right, so offshore wind is all about renewable energy, making the planet a better place to live for us. Uh, equally, decarbonisation in the steel industry, we're trying to make the world a better place as well. So, both industries are sort of facing similar challenges. Your point's absolutely valid, and I think the term that we use is around energy transition. Now, whether that's uh, decarbonising the steel sector, whether that's securing green energy in the form of floating offshore wind, offshore wind, wind, solar, there's a symbiotic relationship between the two and I think what's really important is that we as a leading steel uh, largest company in the UK is seen to be proactive in this space and actually having conversations around where our energy is sourced from and that's green energy is really important to the discussion but what I'm keen to do is then understand how can our steel be used to supply into the offshore wind sector. 
the floating offshore wind sector, the solar sector, the hydrogen sector, and how that relationship can be brought together. Yeah, great. So it's, it's, I think it's fair to say the steel industry is responsible for playing a part in global warming, but there's no way, we can't see a way of decarbonising, reaching net zero without steel as a product. We've just got to have steel, don't we? Steel is part of the problem, but it's also part of the solution. And actually, we should focus on that latter rather than the former. UK government most recently issued a, a steel procurement pipeline, which showed over 8.1 million tonnes of steel is going to be needed over the next decade to support their public sector projects, of which 6.4 million tonnes was around offshore wind. And that pipeline excluded hydrogen, carbon capture and other uh, sectors. So it really does show how important steel is. Amazing. And how, how can the metals, and more importantly to us, the steel sector, how can we support with this transition? One word, and that's got to be innovation. We do not have all of the products that we need, but there are people willing to listen and actually explain and understand how can we sometimes fix a square box in a round hole and actually work with us to ensure that we're part of that project and part of that solution. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Kamal. Uh, I'm going to keep going. We're going to find more people to talk to. Catch you soon. So day two is rolling on. I'm joined now with Kirsty Davis Chinak, who has been here for both days uh, at her stand with Professional Polishing, Polishing Services. Uh, welcome to the pod, Kirsty. Thank you so much, Gareth. Thank you for having me. Great stuff. And yesterday you were on a panel, weren't you, uh, talking about SMEs. What sort of uh, discussions and points are coming up in, in those in that panel? So yesterday the panel was on um, practical tips for sustainability for SMEs. So obviously. And Energy costs have increased for every company, um, SMEs, large corporates, and we were talking about how the, the cleanest energy is the energy you don't use. We were also had some great panelists who were talking about practical things that they'd put in into their businesses that they were sharing with the audience. For example, Darren Malt from Stainless Steel Services was talking about compressed air and just going round, flagging any leaks, and uh, just making sure the system worked well, saves money because air is very heavy to move. Um, so making sure your compressed air runs smoothly, it's going to save him roughly £12,000 a year. Um, we had Chong Sang, uh, the operations director from Balmoral Tanks. They've put in a raft of efficiency saving measures to the extent that in 12 months it's going to save them £100,000, which is huge for an SME. They're a large SME, but they're still an SME. Um, and they've put sensors on all their equipment. They paid a modest fee, I think it cost them 15 grand, for this company to come in and sensor everything so they can see where machines aren't running at optimum, they can see where energy's being wasted. And then we had Sam Bembo, who's a director of Bembo Steels, um, and they um, are one of your customers at Tata Steel. Um, and what they're seeing is 
whilst there's a shift to green steels being produced by the producers, there are some companies that they're dealing with are, are really asking about this, and then others are going, well, there's a higher cost, I'm not going to use it yet because I don't have to. So it's a bit of a fine line, but yeah, they gave some great tips to the audience, and it was a really, really good discussion. Yeah, it's very interesting, as you, you've mentioned a lot of interesting points there, uh, one in particular, energy costs, we're all seeing it, domestically and in business, um, maintenance things. So how can SMEs and larger, the larger steel and metals manufacturing companies, how can they work together to help overcome these issues? I think, and I think it's a post-COVID thing with all the multiple crises we've gone through one after the other. Honestly, it doesn't feel like a day of the week there isn't a new crisis appearing on the horizon. And what, what's becoming clearer is there's more collaboration and people are less protective. Yeah, we're all going to be protective of our, of our IP, but people are talking to each other more. So um, what we did for, for one of our energy initiatives was we developed a carbon calculator. So whenever we polish a sheet of stainless steel, we know how much CO2 uh, we're producing. We know what the emissions are. Um, and what I did, much to the surprise of everyone, was I shared that information with my competitors. Now, I don't expect everyone to do things like that. Um, one of the reasons I did it was it wouldn't actually be that difficult to get a university to come in and do it. So, you know, let's take the step first um, and get the goodwill from it. But, you know, we're talking to each other more. We're being more open. A lot of that is about how people dealt with COVID and, and the challenges it gave them. And, and, and everyone was worried and everything like that. So it's one of those things that the collaboration really, really is something we need to have these conversations um, and we need to not open the doors wide and let down the drawbridge, um, but at least sit and have a coffee and have a chat. Perhaps people who never did before um, and just learn from each other. And the more we can do that, I think the more we're going to all benefit going forwards. Yeah, definitely. Because I was going to say, there's a lot of your competitors in the room, um, a lot of uh, other, other industries and businesses with competitors in the room. Um, there's definitely a sense that it feels as though the rules of the game has changed, but all teams want to work together to make sure they're still playing that game. Think that's fair to say? I think so. I think the days of cutthroat this and cutthroat that. Yeah, every, everybody wants a really good price, but if you're three percent cheaper on a hundred pound, is anyone really going to care? You know, if you're not giving the service, you've got to have the USP, and it's relationships more than ever are what drives business, um, and it's being true to your values, being true to your customers' values, those things really, really pull a punch now more so than they did rather than £2 cheaper. Yeah, so you mentioned their customer values rather than price. So are you seeing then a trend? Is it moving towards people want more green steel, they want greener greener metals, you're with your CO2 
calculator, that kind of thing. Is that, do you think that's going to be more of a pull uh, for customers rather than a more competitive price? I think it's moving that way. It's moving very, very slowly. And again, it's going to change on what the end product is, what the end use is. If somebody send us full an art load of stainless steel just to polish to sell to their day-to-day -day customers, then they don't, you know, they don't want to buy more expensive stainless steel to do that and I assume the steel producers will be the same. However, if it is a large architectural project um, that's got been financed that's costing millions, then yes, that is going to be really important because metals are made from minerals, we pull out the ground and leave a huge pile of dirt there, you know, but some metals are incredibly sustainable. Um, and all metal can be recycled, which makes it infinitely sustainable. Um, so I think it is going to move that way. Excellent. And I can't let you go without talking about uh, day two. Today, uh, you chaired a panel, leading women, leading light in the industry. Have I got that way, right, right way around? Or is it leading light, leading women in the industry? Leading light, leading women, yeah. Thank you. Uh, how did that go? You, you were on, a, on the panel with our very own Tuesday, but son, how, how, did that, um, how did that pan out? It was really interesting. So I was asked to... Um, chair this panel and talk to um, uh, some people from Tata. There was Camel, Cheryl, Tuesday, and then they also asked Sophie from the International uh, Steel Statistics Bureau to be on the panel. And it was a really interesting discussion of how we can encourage more women into the metal industries. We know um, it's a very male-dominated industry. Doesn't make it bad, you know, but there are some great women out there whose skills will really benefit their colleagues, their employers. We know that employers that have a more diverse workforce are more profitable. We also need to be aware of the fact that there's a skill shortage in the metals industry. Why would you only fish from one pool when there are multiple pools? We also need to look at other areas of inclusion. Um, so, you know, people of, of, of different um, backgrounds, we we don't want to look at perhaps, uh, I don't use the phrase outing, but yeah, outing people, not all differences are visible. You know, we don't want people to have to stand up and go, well, I'm neurodivergent, I'm gay, I'm non-binary, if they're not comfortable. But what we need to do between us is create an industry that welcomes everybody so they feel included. Uh, I used a quote on the panel, and my apologies, I can't remember who said it, which is diversity is being invited to the disco, inclusion is being asked to dance, so we need everyone to feel they can enter the room and dance. Yeah, so we, I, it still feels like early days at the moment in certainly the steel industry, it's, it's still perceived as a male dominated uh, industry, you know we've only got 11% of women working for us uh, in Tata Steel. Um, how do we encourage more women, a more, a more diverse workforce? Because uh, it's, it's not just a, you know, a sort of low-tech, dirty industry. There's a lot of, like you said, you need a lot of skills. They're very technical, very innovative. How do we change that perception and how do we encourage a more diverse workforce in the future? It's a multi-pronged attack and I think we raise more questions than generated answers on the panel. But visibility is the first one. If you can't see it, you can't be it. So uh, Cheryl pointed out that it doesn't necessarily need to be a leader who's a woman to be visible. You know, if you've got women in your teams, get their voices heard. Bring them into the room.
room, give them a seat at the table, put them on your podcast, which I know you're doing great, and I have listened to some, um, and, and, and do things like that. Then flexibility, make sure that people who have responsibilities at home, and that's people who have responsibilities, not just women, so who has a day off if you have a family and one of the kids is sick. Um, if you've got aging parents, they're going to need to be taken to the hospital or the doctor's trip. Having a, a culture that supports those conversations in small teams or privately, that you can be flexible. And the really interesting thing that Tuesday raised, uh, which I think was incredibly ballsy of her, where she said she doesn't want to work for free. So, yes, she's going to do a job and do it well, and yes, there'll be priorities where all hands to the pump and you drop everything and you do work over for three hours to get that project done. But that shouldn't be the status quo. You know, I, I joined the industry in the 80s where it was all like, padded shoulders and work five hours over time to prove you're as good as a man. You know, we don't want to do that. And, and just because women of my age and generation had to do those things, that doesn't make it a good thing. It was bloody awful. You know, pick it up and throw it away and let's um, the, the younger generations coming through learn from what we experienced, learn from our mistakes because we made them. Um, and But we need to be visible and vocal about things we got wrong or things that we wished had been done then. One of the conversations I originally had was Tuesday. We spoke about maternity leave and the changes in the law, which is one of the few laws that, you know, sort of have um, been done to improve women's place in the workplace. Um, and she didn't realise that it was only 12 weeks and it was only six weeks paid. Um, the other six weeks was at the um, discretion of your employer. Um, and she's like, I didn't know that. I said, yeah, my son was 10 weeks old when I went back to work because he was two weeks late. So these things and making them clear. So when you're advertising roles, make it clear that what the parental leave is for both men and women. Um, and the other thing is when you're, and this was a point that Kamal raised is, and Tuesday, when you're interviewing and if you're advertising roles, if you're not getting certain genders or certain um, racial backgrounds applying for it, why not? Go and do the research, find out why. What words are you using? that are putting people off um, and the other thing that came through really clearly was having a workplace that is more inclusive for women and uh, other genders and, and, and people of different um, backgrounds makes it better for men in the workplace. They can go and see the kids school play, they can take their mum to the hospital appointment, um, they can go and pick the kids up from school, you know it's not about one over the other it's us all coming together and then it makes life better for everybody but it is down to the culture um, and getting more and more women and in, into the metal industry is going to have to start at a really young age we need to start with a pink for a girl blue for a boy you can be a fireman you can be a nurse it, it, yeah that needs to stop but that's changing society um, and it's going to be a long slog Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Kirsty. Uh, so it sounds like a lot of change. You know, the conversations are happening now, so hopefully in the future a lot of change will happen, both uh, 
in sustainability in terms and also societal terms. Um, you mentioned our podcast, Women in Steel. I have to mention your podcast. Thank you. Women in, uh, women in Industry, our very own Dr. Laura Baker has, uh, has featured as well. So uh, please check that one out. Um, thank you once again, Kirsty. I'm going to move on and find out someone else to talk to. Thanks, Thank Gary. you. Thank you. So as the UK Metals Expo comes to a close, uh, there's just enough time to catch up with Calm played LPS of Swansea University. Calm, welcome to the podcast. Oh yeah, Gareth, how you doing? You okay? Great, great thanks mate, great two days. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're an expert in decarbonisation decarbonization of the steel industry. Uh, obviously that's something we're really trying to move towards quickly. Uh, and the preferred method of technology at the moment is looking like electric arc furnace more than anything. Um, I believe it's, it's what most steel companies in Europe are sort of striving towards, tried and tested technology. Um, but moving technologies, will that mean a different quality or different grades of steel being produced for us? I think that really depends on the approach that we take. So if we look at the way that the market for, say, the key input material, which is going to be secondary scrap material, is operating right now, then I think there could be some limitations. Yeah. So if we look at the way that we organize our supply chains and things like that at the moment, then definitely there could be issues. And so you'll often hear people say, oh, there's a limit to the number of products that you can produce via electric arc furnace uh, production. And that's generally a focus of what we believe to be the available quality of the scrap as it exists at the moment because elements like copper without getting into too much detail elements like copper nickel tin chromium can have an adverse effect on the properties okay um, that being said whilst there is active research on the effects of those elements and how we might be able to mitigate that through the way that we process the material if they do end up in it there are also things that we can do more on the supply chain side so there are agreements that we could be making contractually with some of our customers as we sell the material now to potentially get that material back later and if we introduce some of those organizational elements some of those business model elements solve some of the financial problems around that we'd eliminate some of those technical problems that we're striving to deliver now and those those limitations that are giving us those technical assumed technical challenges so I think there is the potential to, to, to look at a much wider range of the grade book if we can solve those two challenges at the same time what we can handle in there above and beyond what we have now and how we can change the supply chain to do something different in the future. Fantastic, so it is almost a myth that electric arc furnace does not produce the grades. It is certainly possible, isn't it? It's possible, but we have to change what we're doing. So it's not a myth in the context of the way that we try to do that now. So if you look at what's happening in the US, they adopted the mini mill electric arc furnace model very early on, but they survived producing the wide range of those products by doing quite a lot of dilution with virgin iron material, either from directly reduced iron or from blast furnaces. And so um, if we're going to do it properly yeah, and go fully electric arc, then we've got to learn from that and say, right, we can't just rely on dilution. We can do more to affect the supply chain and then do it right at much better carbon uh, benefit. Yeah, and touching on that decarbonisation piece, um, while they don't emit as much carbon dioxide as our blast furnaces do, uh, they do emit the likes of hydrogen and water vapour, which also contribute to global warming. Now, is that a concern for us down the line? Uh, this is a bit of an interesting one. I've got to caveat this with the fact that I'm not a climate scientist. Okay, But my understanding is that if you look at it on a 
side by side, then water is a stronger uh, water vapor is a stronger greenhouse has a stronger greenhouse gas effect than carbon dioxide. But the thing is, it rains, right? So it's got somewhere to go. Whereas the carbon dioxide is going to sit there up in the atmosphere for a long period of time. That's what's driving the macro effect of global warming, irrespective of the sort of ups and downs of what's happening with the weather, for example. And so, you know, obviously, the more we avoid emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, the bigger benefit that we're going to have in the long run. So there's certainly a greener way of, of making steel. Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I think it's hard to deny that. Um, what about energy then? Because electric arc furnaces heat up to about 17 to 1800 degrees, which is and purely on electricity. Yes. That's a lot of electricity to, to generate that much power, uh, to generate that much heat, sorry. Yeah. Is, you know, how energy intensive are they, certainly compared to our current methods of primary steel making? Yeah, so it all just depends how you judge energy, right? So if you looked at the electrical input that's required to do something via the integrated route and compared that to the electrical input that's required to do something via the electric arc furnace, route, you're going to see a greater, per tonne of steel produced, you're going to see a greater input uh, on the electric arc side. But what you're ignoring is a massive amount of chemical energy that goes into the processes um, through uh, coal, essentially, yeah, or coke, um, and some of the natural gas and stuff that might be required um, for reduction purposes. Once you balance those two things together, then simply just remelting the material overall, you consider all the vectors of energy in all, all its different forms, is much, much less lower for the AF process than it is for the uh, integrated process. Yeah, very quickly as we've got you here, uh, we, did, we did do a podcast with uh, Professor John Gibbons from Sheffield University okay. and he really promoted the idea of carbon capture. Why not rather move to electric arc furnace technology? Why not capture the carbon we're, we're you know, offsetting or we're, sorry, we're giving off yes. uh, and bury it underground? Mm. That way we can, rather than just solve our problem in the UK of, of uh, the decarbonisation Carbonisation issue, but we only emit one to two percent of the world's carbon dioxide. The likes of China are far greater. Yes. Why not become a more of a thought leader and try and influence the likes of China okay. uh, by proving carbon capture can work? Well, we shouldn't necessarily. There's a lot to answer in that in that point, but it's a really interesting one that you raise. The first thing is be careful about assuming that China is behind us on the race to net zero. I'm not necessarily sure that's the case. They're very, very well organised, and they know what they're doing. Yeah. So I think if you look certainly territorially within China, they are doing similar things to the things that we're doing, and um, you might have to be careful then looking at investments that might be happening in other countries that are fully unabated blast furnace. Okay. So that's the first point. The second thing to say is that um, if you look at the critics of, um, of carbon capture would say that it's quite an energy intensive process and if you're looking at carbon capture and then storage and I like to make sure these two things are considered slightly differently you're essentially looking at something which is only delivering a cost and no benefit to your business yeah whilst there are um, installations for carbon capture and storage in different areas many of them you would say are not performing at the scales that you would need to abate all of the emissions associated with the steel industry and as far as I'm aware there is no full-scale commercial implementation of this on an integrated steelworks yeah at a level that is completely offsetting their carbon emissions yeah 
So, um, so there is a level of uncertainty about that. But we're not ignoring that as an option within the program that I lead, Sustain. Okay, so we are actually developing new low energy methods of carbon capture that also might be more specifically suited to the steel making gases that make them a bit more robust than say amine type technologies. Okay, and I think we're open to the idea that that could actually have a significant benefit. Yeah? So I think we sit somewhere in the middle and we're being guided by what we see in the results of the research that we're doing and trying to be objective. Um, the last point that I would uh, that I would make on that is that um, once you've got the carbon, so the carbon capture, the CC part of CCS or CCU, we're more interested in our research at the utilisation. I would acknowledge that's much lower TRL, but there's a potential benefit there if we can commercialise those technologies and harness the benefits of our lower energy capture technology. Because if we can do that, we can kind of offset some of the additional energy that has to go into carbon dioxide um, conversion, which can create new synthetic fuels that are essentially net zero, or the development of chemical precursors. Because if we think the challenges of decarbonizing the steel industry are bad, the chemical industry has got it much, much worse. And so there are the potential to link these two sectors together, and one could feed the other. Now, obviously, if we eliminate all of the blast furnaces, yeah, which, by the way, is impossible based on our demand profile yeah. Yeah, and, and the productive capacity of alternative iron-making technologies, which are nowhere near the blast furnace, not even close. Yeah. But even if we, did, uh, if we did eliminate all of those, then we could potentially be in a position where we're denying a decarbonisation pathway for the chemical sector. Yeah. So I think you shouldn't have a closed mind as to the technology. Whether or not you should do that in certain geographical locations is a different argument. Yeah. There are some strong reasons why you would go more for the secondary material recycling and EAF option in the UK, and that's because we're a developed economy. There's actually quite a high level of scrap compared to the domestic demand that we have. Yeah. But we should acknowledge that if we use that, if we completely adopt that model and we use all of that material in the UK, then one of our primary export markets, Turkey, which doesn't have as much of that material coming in, yeah, for, sorry, export market for scrap, that doesn't have as much of that material coming in, well, well then what's their option? Maybe their only option is to build a blast furnace, import iron ore, and then produce steel that way. Yeah? So we've got to be careful that we don't simply offshore one thing to another. Yeah. If we develop a carbon capture technology in the UK, say through Sustain, or even a carbon capture and utilisation technology within the UK, but by the point it gets to commercialisation, um, there are no blast furnaces in the UK. I still think there's a benefit there because in doing that, we could be creating blast furnaces elsewhere to fulfil their demand. If we've developed a technology that allows us to, to abate those emissions, then we truly have made an overall global, global dent in the carbon emissions associated with the steel industry. So whether we lead in implementation in the UK, yeah, or we lead in technology development, which is then implemented in another country to offset the emissions that we've essentially shipped from one location to another, we're still doing that leadership piece in the UK and providing a global benefit. Yeah, so obviously moving technologies is the way forward. We really need to really need to decarbonise. Um, as I've said before, you know, steel is everywhere. We can't live without steel. Yeah. It is. It is obviously part of the problem uh, with with global warming, but inevitably it is. It's, surely it is part of the solution as well. Uh, great way to end the podcast, Cam. Thanks so much for your time. I'll speak to you again. Thanks, Gareth. Cheers. Cheers.
So this year's UK Metals Expos come to a close. Uh, exhibitors are packing up, visitors are going home. Uh, topics that come up are decarbonisation, skills, sustainability, and that all important level playing field. Uh, and what ties all those things together is a theme of collaboration. But the rules may be changing, but all teams want to stay in the game, both domestically and on the world stage. The future of the steel industry may be unclear, but surely it's not uncertain. The world simply cannot decarbonise without steel. That's it for this episode of Steelcast. Uh, don't forget to check out our other podcast, Women of Steel. Uh, that and all episodes of Steelcast, all available on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thank you.